to be at a conference and to hear pastor theologian Dr. John Piper bring a wonderful message from God's Word. There's a sense in which we could say any message from God's Word is a wonderful message. But Dr. Piper's teaching that day was particularly memorable for me, particularly moving. He had only a few days before preached the funeral of his beloved father. And it was very clear to those in attendance that his own heart uh, was engaged with the truth in a very deep way. He uh, was experiencing, I think, both a mingling of grief over his loss, but at the same time, as only a Christian can say, a certain sure and joyful hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he knew that his own pastor father believed. But I must tell you, somehow I listened even more intently because while he did not mention it that day, I was aware that he himself was battling cancer. Prior to the conference, I had read an essay which he penned on the eve of his cancer surgery. The title was striking and the content was profoundly biblical. And I want to say that anyone with any kind of trouble in their life or in the life of a loved one, uh, you would find the article to be particularly instructive. The title declared in capital letters, Don't Waste Your Cancer. The great advantage that Dr. Piper had when trouble came to his home is that his heart and mind was so biblically informed that he could face the dreaded C word with a certain grace and peace. Sometimes perhaps I will share with you the entire article, but all of us, I think, will benefit as I list just the ten main points he raised for all of our consideration. They are as follows. Number one, he said, you will waste your cancer if you do not believe it is designed for you by God. Number two, he said, you will waste your cancer if you believe it is a curse and not a gift. Number three, you will waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from God. Number four, you will waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. Number five, you will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Number six, you will waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. Number seven, 
You will waste your cancer if you let it drive you into solitude instead of deepening your relationships with manifest affection. That is, of course, identifying with others in like situations and being a blessing. Number eight, you will waste your cancer if you grieve as those who have no hope. Number nine, you will waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as before. And number 10, you will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. Dr. Piper's bold declarations reflect the reality that Christians are in no way exempt from trouble. Witness, if you will, the best of God's servants who have suffered even unto death as recorded in the scriptures both old and new and in all of church history even to this present hour. But that is only part of the truth. Christians are in no way exempt from trouble but every Christian's trouble is designed by God to be redemptive in nature. That is to say in another way that nothing, nothing touches the life of a child of God without first passing through the sovereign hands of a loving Lord who works all things together for good. In every circumstance of life, the believer can know that God is redeeming their troubles in such a way that even death itself cannot defeat. In fact, as Piper said in his list of ten lessons, you waste your trouble if you refuse to think about death. Now, the world cannot understand this. Because death for an unbeliever is an unspeakable horror. It's the worst that can happen. It's the last enemy. But as the apostle will say right here in this epistle to the Philippians, Oh, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Is gain. In fact, he will say, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So in this present life, with all of its troubles, he further declares, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For many of the days of Paul, since his conversion, he was more at home with thoughts of heaven than he was even here on earth. He writes this way, in this letter in particular, because he wants the Philippian believers to know, and the Lord wants by this inspired text also wants us to know, that every kind of trouble we face has 
a redemptive value attached to it. I want to say that again. Every kind of trouble we face has a redemptive value attached to it. Troubles in no way can keep us from experiencing joy in the journey and peace for the day. This sort of banner we've hung over the whole message of the book of Philippians. There is joy in the journey and there is peace for the day. And that is true whether or not one's way is full of trouble as it was for Paul. Paul is the author of 13, possibly 14, of the New Testament books of the Bible. Four of these are written for the express purpose of encouraging God's people to remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of great trials, affliction, persecution, and troubles of every kind. The four epistles are all written while the apostle himself is under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, what are aptly then called the prison epistles, are Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and of course, Philippians. In every case, he views himself, remember, not as a prisoner of Rome, but a, quote, prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Much of his victory is expressed in that eternal perspective. He is about to give us insights into his own trouble, and we're meant to learn from it. He would not waste his trouble, and he does not want us to waste our troubles either. He wants us to know the blessing of redemptive trouble. See then how he begins right here in verse 12. He says, now... I want you to know, brethren. Now, I'm going to just put a parenthetical statement here right away. This truth about the troubles of life having God's redemptive purpose is for believers only. They are for the children of God. He addresses them as brethren. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I'll remind you, he's writing in prison, but he's talking about things being turned out. He's talking about trouble. He's talking about circumstances, he says, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Or Paul would say, you know, my being in prison is not a pleasant thing. In fact, I live every day under the shadow of the Roman sword. He did not know for sure that he would ever be released alive. But he is saying, my circumstances have been redemptive in nature. It is turned out, he says, for the greater progress of the gospel. You and I should be asking ourselves already, go ahead and do this. What are my circumstances? Think about that. What is your trouble? And let me ask you, 
How are they turning out? Because for the child of God, we are never just in trouble. <laughs> we are on a journey of everything turning out into something good. You know, I uh, did not consciously have anything to do, I think, with what message ended up outside on our road sign for this Lord's Day. But it was striking. I had no sooner completed my studies for this message as I was pulling out and noticed that our faithful sign changer had put these words up for this weekend, for this message, I think. It says simply out there, in case you didn't see it, God is up to something good. That is the Romans 8.28 principle. It is especially precious, precious truth, is it not, in the midst of trouble. God is always up to something good, even in the midst, or especially in the midst of our circumstances, which we would call trouble. In Paul's case, in this particular circumstance, the gospel is spreading. In fact, Paul's chains have unchanged or unleashed the gospel message in the most unlikely, but it turns out in one of the most important and influential places. Look at verse 13. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian, now I'll explain that word in just a moment, throughout the whole Praetorian guard, and then he says, and to everyone else, meaning in Rome. Paul saying, I am confined, I am in trouble. I'm chained to a Roman soldier. I'm in prison. But guess what? The gospel is spreading all throughout Rome as a result. And throughout this praetorian guard. Follow this. First, his circumstance. Let's look at it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Quote, according to the custom of that time... Paul was chained to soldiers, quite possibly to one on each side. A constant relay of soldiers, each taking a shift over every 24-hour period. There was a complete absence of everything that would make life comfortable. Lloyd-Jones says how trying and galling that must have been, especially in view of what these soldiers must be like in his face. Rough, uncouth men, probably the very antithesis of Paul himself with his refined, cultured, sensitive, and spiritual mind. End of quote. But then, seeing how things turn out, one might ask the question, who was the real prisoner? The providential irony, and I think this is just delicious, it's this elite corps of guards who one by one taking their shifts are chained to, of all things, an evangelist. Paul has a captive audience for the gospel. 
Furthermore, that word praetorian refers to the governor's mansion. The gospel spreads beyond the number of now converted guards right into Caesar's household. Some of the very elite of Rome are coming to the knowledge of Christ. How's that for redemptive trouble? Take a quick glance ahead, will you, to the very end of the epistle here, Philippians, to chapter 4. I want you to see this, verses 21 and 22. Chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Now let me make this statement. I can't prove it, but I wouldn't be surprised if we were to discover the original document, Paul's actual writing, that at the end of wherever these two verses would be, I just suspect, in my unsanctified imagination, that at the end of these two verses, Paul might have drawn one of those smiley faces. Because look at what it actually says. Verse 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Those holding him captive have now become brothers in Christ. Now it goes on. All the saints greet you, for the word has spread beyond the prison. But then Paul writes this phrase, especially those of Caesar's household. Smiley face. <laughs> what a message. Paul is telling us that the troubles you and I encounter are redemptive troubles. They turn out for something greater. In this case, the advance of the gospel. What could be greater than that? And by the way, that phrase, turn out, should bring to mind, I think, the picture of the potter, the hands on the vessel, shaping it at the potter's wheel. You see, you really need to believe this, folks. I need often to remind myself of this truth, that your trouble and mine is in the hands of the master potter. I want you to take God's word for it. He is the one who said, I am the potter and you are the clay. That means he is shaping us into a vessel for his glory. And I want to tell you there is no better place to be than in his hands, even if it means trouble. Trouble is just the potter's hands of pressure applied to the shaping of the vessel. We're to look for God's purposes to be revealed. If they are not revealed now, they most certainly shall be revealed in glory. In another place, Paul says, I am convinced that all of the troubles of this life are not worthy to be compared with the end product, the finished product, with the glory that shall be revealed. The lesson this morning, it's a basic and simple one, but oh, 
we do indeed need to be reminded of it often. I want you to look more closely. I invite you to do this. Look more closely at every difficult thing in your life and you will see God's all over it. And we discover that Paul's overcoming faith in these matters has encouraged others to, quote, speak out for the Lord without fear. I have to admit, I didn't always understand this text. At first glance, one might think, and before Paul's letter, maybe the Philippians were thinking, that preaching the gospel and living for Christ can get you thrown into prison. Look at Paul's trouble, they might say. But actually, for those who did witness Paul's joy and his peace, even in chains, causes others to be emboldened to take their stand with Christ. They would say, don't look at Paul's troubles, look at his faith. See his joy. Why, his peace, given the circumstances, is a peace beyond all comprehension. Praise the Lord. And they concluded, if Paul can do it, so can I, by the grace of God. For that is how Paul could sing even hymns of praise in a dungeon place. This is how Paul, as he will say later in this very epistle, this was how Paul was learning, learning to be content in every situation, even chained to a Roman soldier. Now verse 14 says, Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, those that have come to faith in Christ, says, Because of my imprisonment, my success really, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, did you notice there that it was most of the brethren, not all of the brethren. So even in Paul's day, as in ours, there were others whose motives, apparently, for various reasons, were getting into the preaching business, mainly because it gathered a following. I noticed in our own little town of Inglewood this week, the big, bright, shiny camper, trailer, whatever it was, pulled into town and a tent went up. And on the side was the advertisement, come to camp meeting. And you will see the first word among things you would witness was the word miracles. Come see miracles. Come hear prophetic predictions. And there was a line of things that the traveling preacher had come to town to declare to us under the tent at the tent meetings this last week. And on the bottom of a long list of spectacular things, I was at least thankful to see that you might even hear, and the word was there, the gospel. Miracles, prophecies, all kinds of astounding things, and uh, the gospel. And Paul's talking about something like this in his day as well as our Preaching gathered a following, thinking they would hitch a ride on the apostles' coattails 
They dared to co-opt the gospel, as he will say here, for selfish or even for mean motives. You read this in verses 15 through 17. The Bible's very honest. It paints the whole picture here. Let's begin to read at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. It's a, a mixed bag of preachers, he's saying. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, the rascals, well, they're proclaiming Christ, but it's out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. It's just more trouble, you see. You know that on top of everything else now, this had to mean even more heartache in the soul for this suffering apostle. What does he make of it? Uh, he might have borrowed words from the psalmist at this point. Lord, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> Here I am in prison and others out there with impure, selfish motives are preaching and they're not in prison. But he's been learning the lesson and teaching it to us of redemptive trouble. He's been learning it so much that it colors every negative thing that touches his life. I want you to see this. You see, Paul is never just an unfounded optimist, but rather a biblical realist. Verse 18 is Paul's, so what? <laughs> yeah, they're doing this. Is it painful? Indeed. Does it cause me concern? Oh, yes. But as he processes it, that all the troubles a believer faces have a redemptive nature, he ends up saying basically what we would say today is, so what? What then are the words that he uses, right? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, because God will ultimately judge motives, Christ is proclaimed, he says. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. I guess when I drove a little further past the tent and the big flashy sign advertising miracles and prophecies this week, I did see the word gospel. And if I had a mind like Paul's, discipline to see God's redeeming purposes in every kind of trouble, I might have simply said, so what about the rest? Not that it's not a real danger and ought to be exposed, any false teaching, but we can rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed, even if it comes out of the mouth of an impure servant. I want to ask you then, are you looking for the redemptive aspects of your trouble? Learn to ask of the Lord, Lord, show me things in my circumstances, especially the hard circumstances, so that I with Paul can say, yes, I will rejoice because you are using my troubles so that Christ may be lifted up in my life. Who has the more powerful witness to the unbelieving world, do you think? The person who professes to be a Christian 
in whose life nothing can be seen but bright rays of sunshine and daisies all around? Or is it that person who witnesses the loudest, who suffers all the turmoils and troubles and losses and pains and afflictions of this world, but somehow in the midst of them can rejoice as Paul does? The latter, I think, has the louder witness for the glory of Christ. It is most important, I think, that we not misinterpret what Paul says next. So let's look at it carefully. We're at verses 19 and 20. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I've suggested we ought to look at this carefully and not misinterpret. Some have, in fact, that is, interpreters, have, in fact, suggested that Paul is perhaps prophetically saying that he is about to get out of prison. He does speak of a deliverance here. And that he even hopes, he says he hopes, perhaps to come and to see them. I'm sure that that is an aspect of his hope. Who wouldn't want to get out of jail and who wouldn't want to go visit their friends in Philippi. But I think he's saying something here much more profound. What deliverance is he actually referring to? I don't think he means jail necessarily. What prayers is it that he would have them pray when he mentions that? What provision of the Holy Spirit does he say he desires? What is his earnest expectation and hope? Is it the get out of jail free card? No. He expects that in the midst of this trouble, God will vindicate his sufferings for the gospel's cause. For Jesus' sake, that he will not be put to shame, he says. That he will remain a bold witness so that Christ, this is all that matters, so that Christ will be lifted up, exalted. And then Paul says, whether it be by my continuing to live or whether it be by my death. If he comes to see the Philippians, then God has surely delivered him. But this is, a, this is what is of importance to him. If they should hear that he's been executed, which is entirely possible, they should not despair because he says, whether it be by life or whether it be by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't cry for me. Not Argentina. But don't cry for me, you Philippians. For by life or by death, the deliverance I seek the shame that I want to avoid, the boldness I want to express, is that dead or alive, Christ might be exalted 
through me. Now we'll look some more at this next Lord's Day, but for now, let me say again, the burden of this message today is that you will come to trust as never before the hand of the Lord in the midst of your troubles. Do not waste, well, for some of you, it is do not waste your cancer. Do not waste your affliction. Do not waste the grief of your losses. Do not waste your trouble. Do not for a moment think that God is not in the trouble, advancing His cause in and through you for His glory, whether it be by life or by death. This is simply the test of the Lord Jesus working its way out in Paul's trouble. Anyone who is not willing, Jesus said, to take up a cross and in a very real sense die daily is not worthy of me. I want to invite you to do this with me now, a kind of sincere spiritual exercise. I'm going to invite you to just perhaps even bow your head. And I want you to hear these wise words from the antique pen of the poet William Cooper, writing in the 1700s, truth that is truth in this present moment. Listen to what profound insight into the scriptures this servant had. Listen, even with your eyes closed, but your minds and hearts open to this truth. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, feelings, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask each of you, as if you and I and just the Lord were in this room, to examine your own heart and your standing, especially before your Creator, God, and Savior. Are these truths that troubles 
For God's children are all redemptive troubles true for you. That is, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of heaven? And if you are not, I invite you to exercise faith, trust in the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and all of your troubles will be redeemed for his glory. Didn't say he'd get you out of all your troubles. I'm just telling you he's in them all, working together his glory and your good. Trust in the Lord. To those here this morning who know they belong to him, I invite you to take a fresh look at your troubles. I want you to see the fingerprints of the Lord who really is working all things together for good for his children. And go forth from this place with renewed faith and trust that even in troubled times, he does all things well. Father, seal away this truth. Strengthen our faith. Help us each day. In Jesus' name, amen. I know many of you are aware and you're praying for my upcoming trip to Germany, where I am looking forward to seeing a whole lot of things. One of the great experiences of world travel is to take in uh, architecture and uh, the arts, uh, older than America itself. That's always been a thrill for me. I've had the privilege, God has blessed me, uh, to travel in different parts of this great uh, world in which we live. I can remember some years ago being in the city of Rome and uh, looking uh, at the different uh, sites and places, and the great religious uh, places, the great cathedrals. I remember outside of the Cathedral of Paul, uh, there was a great uh, statue of the apostle, of course, standing right out in front of in the uh, courtyard, the churchyard. And I just stood there in awe. The artist had done such an incredibly lifelike, wonderful job of depicting uh, the apostle Paul. Uh, but what struck me was that as he stood there, head unbowed, uh, as one who did proclaim so faithfully the gospel. Uh, there was the scriptures in one arm being uh, held as against his own heart. But what particularly struck my attention on that day was here was the Apostle Paul, and in the other hand, he held a great sword. And I thought, what's a tent maker doing with a sword? What is a preacher of the gospel doing with a sword? And then you have to remember that one of Paul's favorite ways of expressing the boldness and courage, duty and responsibility of being a follower of Christ was what? To be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul got to observe at pretty close hand the discipline of the Roman soldiers, even that elite corps that were the Praetorian Guard. And so he would write elsewhere that you and I, 
should be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Soldiers are ready to face trouble. They don't turn their backs and run. They see God and his redemptive purposes, and they don't waste the conflict. Hymn number 482 reminds us of that. It asks us the question, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Shall I fear to own his cause? Paul said, don't let me be ashamed, Lord. Let me be bold. Don't let me blush to speak your name, even if it were to mean death.